0: is Madeline Smith and you are listening to Actually Interesting History. We make history fun, accessible, and interesting by sharing the human story behind the dates we learned about in history class. As Rudyard Kipling said, if history was taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. Now on with the show. Just a quick disclaimer, we are currently covering ancient history and some of it can be brutal. Please review before you share with children. Thanks! As I was researching for this episode, I was transported back to 19-year-old me taking the online course, The History of Ancient Greece and Rome, and just being absolutely flabbergasted that I got to research and study this stuff and actually be graded on it in school. My professor for that online course was Lita Gregory, and her and her husband, Professor Tim Gregory, were the people who hosted me while I was in Greece working for the first time. Because of that, this episode is dedicated to Tim and Lita Gregory. Thank you both so much for helping inspire my love of ancient history. Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of Actually Interesting History. We are currently covering the story of Cleopatra, and last week we talked about the reign of her father and Cleopatra's early life. I would say it was pretty typical Ptolemy. You know, power-hungry sister, death, mobs, the usual. Uh, Surprise, though, Cleopatra's dad actually managed to die of old age, but not without getting Rome more deeply involved in the politics of Egypt, even going as far as making them the executor of his will so that his kingdom would be left in the hands of his daughter, Cleopatra VII, and her brother, T-13. So... (sighs) I was looking over the timeline and I think that it makes the most sense to go to the other side of the Mediterranean Sea at this point in the story and go over what has been happening in Rome. Now, if you know anything about Cleopatra, I'm guessing you know that Caesar makes an appearance in her story. So having some background on what he was doing before he shows up in Egypt, spoiler alert, is probably going to be pretty helpful because when you think about the greater context of the story of Cleopatra, as the end of the Hellenistic Age in the West, what happens is, what happens immediately after that is the rise of the Roman Empire. And this story is deeply intertwined with that of the story of Cleopatra. And again, remember, Alexander the Great spread Hellenistic culture throughout the rest, and the rise of the diadocte kingdoms after his death saw a flourishing of Greece culture. Now let's meet the culture that took rise after them. The Romans. I'm not going to go into a complete history of Rome as I do not have time for that and there's actually a podcast that I love very deeply that actually goes through the Roman Empire from the very start of the kings all the way through the emperors. Uh, so if you guys are interested in that, um, I will link that show. But again, there's an entire podcast episode to it so I can't possibly get over I can't possibly go over it in that much detail, but I will go over some basics, starting with the fact that Rome is located in modern-day Italy, and if you think that was a ridiculous sentence, you know, we all gotta start somewhere. Uh, Rome was a city that was originally ruled by monarchs that were elected by life by a senate, and in the traditional story, the last monarch, Tarquin, was expelled from Rome in 509 B.C., Now, the story of Tarquin is probably based on some historical events, but it's worth noting that the very specific date the Romans picked, the year 509 BC, um, predated the rise of Athenian democracy by one year, and coincidence, I assure you it is not. I think that they did this on purpose to claim that they were the first and the best very Roman thing, which is a hilariously petty PR move. And petty PR moves are going to be the theme of this episode, which is right up my humor alley, so regardless to say, I'm pretty excited about it. The monarchy was replaced by the Roman Republic. To replace the kingship, most of the former functions of the king were transferred to two separate offices called councils. These consuls were elected to office for a term of one year, and each was capable of acting as a check on his colleague, and since the term was short, it meant that no one could gain enough power to overthrow the balance. There were also other rules that had to do with the councils. Like, for example, you could only be a council every once every 10 years, even though these rules get a lot more complicated, and then rules are bent, you know, as time goes forward. But for the most part, that's pretty much all you have to know. And referring... Referring to the Roman Republic as a democracy is a bit of a stretch. It was more of an oligarchy, uh, as in a few people had <laughs> had power, money, and status and these people ruled. and this group was referred to as the patricians. And I think that this is a good point to talk about the social classes in Rome. So we already talked about the patricians. they were the upper class in Roman society. and the class below them was the plebs or plebeians which emerged as a self-organized cultural distinct group of commoners that did jobs like farm, Um, they were artisans, they were traders and tenants, and then there was a third class of people living in Rome and these were slaves. Now there was a lot of slavery in ancient Rome, um, something that is going to become a problem, we will cover that soon, and slavery unfortunately was incredibly common in the ancient world and Rome was no exception. Now there were situations where slaves could become freed, and this group of people were referred to as freedmen. They were able to gain Roman citizens, and later in Roman culture were actually able to rise to the ranks of society, um, though the majority normally worked as farmers or tradesmen. Uh, this is the simplest way to look at the Roman societal structure. Uh, they also had a way to classify people based on how much property you had, but it's a little complicated, and I think that this covers the basics and you can pretty much understand what's going to be happening from here. While we're talking about groups of people, we can also address another pretty important group of people, women. Now, women in ancient Rome could not vote or hold political office. They were controlled by the head of their family, the Petrafamilius, which was often their father, husband, or even in some cases brother, depending on who the highest-ranking male uh, that was most closely related to them was. Um, Women were pretty much viewed as property, and this was in stark contrast to the relatively robust rights of women in ancient Egypt at the time. And this will lead to some cultural classes, because the Roman people looked at Cleopatra and were like, hmm, I don't, how can you be in charge? How can you have property? You know, things like that. So uh, (laughs) just keep that in mind. Lots of differences between the lives of women in Rome and the lives of women in ancient Egypt. For the next few centuries, the Roman political system became more complex, but the basics stayed the same. They did not like kings. They also did not like dictators, even though a few of them managed to gain power from now on again. Now, Rome also started to expand its territory as it came into conflict with surrounding cultures and was able to gain land after defeating them. By 272 BC, Rome controlled the entire uh, Italian peninsula. Next, Rome's attention turned towards Carthage, a cultural group of cities in North Africa that took up most of Rome's attention in a series of wars that lasted the next 150-ish years. At the same time, Rome was also warned with the League of Greek city-states that were left after the death of Alexander the Great. Then, at this point, the very large population of slaves became a problem. In the city of Rome itself, 25 to 40% of the population was made up of slaves. In in (laughs) 135 BC, the first servile war, which means slave revolt, broke out in Sicily, where conditions for slaves were particularly brutal. There were several servile wars, which led to increasing feeling of panic amongst the Roman people. The last 100-ish years before the Common Era saw the erosion of the Roman political system, which eventually gave rise to the Roman Empire. There were a number of factors that contributed to this, but a very big one was some fighting between two powerful generals. The fighting between Marius and Sulla for power is one of the reasons that the Roman Republic would eventually come to an end. Marius was a general and a statesman who was elected consul an unprecedented seven times during his political career. Marius was also responsible for shifting the Roman army from a militia to a professional army, which would cause a lot of problems later on for the Roman people. Now, when we jump into Marius' story, he has already led a long life of service for the Roman Republic uh, that, just for the sake of time, we can't get into closely. But Marius was the head of a party known as the Populars. Now, while it sounds like this would be a party led for the people, by the people, you know, like the populace, it's more like a group of aristocrats that gained favor with the general population of plebeians of Rome, by trying to pass popular measures that would make them back them, such as land reform. Sulla, on the other hand, was the head of a party of optimates, or best men, which wanted to keep the traditional organization of the Roman government. This meant that they wanted to keep the power in the hands of the powerful, because, again, even though this is called a democracy, it's more like an oligarchy, and the people at the top wanted to stay in power. Go figure. So, in 88 BC, Sulla was elected to counselorship. Now, Marius and Sulla did not get along, and in a complicated way that's not worth explaining, even though Sulla was council, um, and I, I know I keep changing the way that I pronounce that word, it's, you know what I mean. So, at this point, you know, he is at the head of some troops who are located, they're not in Rome, they're at another part of Italy fighting. And Marius is elected to this position that basically gives him some power. And he sends a messenger to Salah. Sala um, is insulted, he kills the messenger. It's complicated, doesn't really matter. But basically, Marius insults Salah, and Sala's like, yeah, no, I'm not gonna stand for this. So, up until this point, no Roman army had ever marched upon Rome. Sulla took Rome by force from Marius who had no troops to speak of, though he did try to organize some gladiators, which I think is really sucks for those gladiators who probably didn't want to be there in the first place. But Marius barely escapes from Rome with his life and flees to Africa. Now, even though Sulla had taken control of the city by force, which I'm going to go ahead and guess probably didn't make a lot of people happy, uh, who didn't who it did make happy, though, was the Senate, Who thought that Marius had gained power illegally and welcomed back Sulla to take control of the city. Now at this point, anyone who supported Marius was exiled from the city or put to death. In 87 BC, councilship elections were held again and Sulla was given command of a foreign campaign (laughs) and left the city. When a pro Marius man named Cinna won councilship, he was exiled from the city. Marius joined forces with Sulla, and they both raised armies to march against Rome. The Senate allowed them to enter because basically they didn't have a choice. There was nothing that they could do, uh, as they did not have men to defend the city. After they entered the city, Marius's men killed many of the leading supporters of Sulla. Now, shortly after Marius was elected for his seventh uh, consulship, um, before power could be trans- transitioned to him, he died. Now Sulla returned to Rome in 83 BC where the supporters of Marius were still in control. Sulla overcame them and recaptured the city and Marius' supporters were killed. What the Senate does next is going to require some explaining. So the Senate declares Sulla dictator but with no limit on the time that he could hold the office at the beginning of 81 BC. Now the reason this is unusual is because In times of danger to the city, such as like during the second Punic War, um, they had elected dictators in the past, which basically was like an emergency measure where one man, because they needed like quick organization, they couldn't really like, they didn't have time. They would put one person in charge. That person would take up uh, control of the government. They'd get them through that period of crisis and then that person would hand back over uh, the power that they had been given, and so it was very much an emergency measure. And this only happened for periods of six months. Now, the thing with Sulla that was so weird about his dictatorship is that there was no time limit on when he could hold the office, and this, uh, this. This was pretty crazy, and it started to put some ideas into the heads of people who probably <laughs> who probably didn't need to have those kinds of ideas. We will get into what I'm talking about in a second. Back to Sulla, your uh, newly declared dictator, with his new power, he ushered in a program of prescriptions where uh, he believed that it was totally cool if You found someone who was believed to be an enemy of state, you could murder them, have their property confiscated, buy it on the cheap, and you could present their head to him and he wouldn't, he'd like give you two, uh, give you two coins. So that was exciting. Also, for you to be declared an enemy of the state, it didn't have to be something where he said the name first. You could kill someone, say, oh, this person was an enemy of the state because they did X, Y, and Z. I like their property now. And he was just kind of like, cool, I don't see any problem with that. Which (laughs) I'm sure you can already guess was like a real life purge situation where literally no one was safe and it was just chaos. And with a definition as vague as (laughs) enemy of the state, it's no wonder that it didn't go well. Now, Plutarch states in the life of Sulla that Sulla now began to make blood flow, and he filled the city with deaths without number or limit. There was one lucky notable man who managed to avoid the prescriptions, and this was Cinna's son-in-law, Gaius Julius Caesar, who managed to avoid it by fleeing the city. Then, Caesar's pro-Sulla relatives intervened and was able to save his life. However, figuring Sulla could change his mind at any minute, the young Caesar left the city and began a military career. That was a brief cameo. Caesar will come back into our story, I assure you. Now, after three years, satisfied that Sulla had strengthened the senatorial ruling class and returned things to what he believed should be the status quo, as in he gave pretty much all the power to the Senate, Sulla retired to the countryside and died in 78 B.C., now at this point in the story we are going to be shifting to the story of the first triumvirate and caesar now there's just not enough time to go into caesar's life in a whole and i'm sure that we'll go back and i will cover caesar at some point but at this point i'm just going to give you a very brief like timeline of what's going on in rome leading up to the end of the first triumvirate I'll also explain what the first triumvirate is. I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I just kind of want to let you guys know what's going to be happening now. Okay. After Sulla died, Caesar decided it was probably safe enough to return to Rome. The issue was all of his money had pretty much been confiscated, you know, as part of the prescriptions. So, in order to build a name for himself, Caesar began a legal career. And he became known for the prosecution of former governors of Roman provinces that were known for extortion and corruption, something that will become hilariously ironic, based on the later actions of Caesar, we'll cover that, Um, but this endeared him to the people, making him a star of the populist party. During the next few years, Caesar climbed the political ranks and eventually rose to be the governor of Hispania. Now, a few few years later, the third and largest servile war, led by a gladiator named Spartacus, began in 73 BC. Now, this war was particularly terrifying because somewhere between 120,000 and 150,000 slaves revolted. The rebellion was put down in 71 BC by two of the leading heads of Sulla's party, Crassus and Pompey. Now, after these men returned to the city, they made a deal with members of the Populars Party, that's the party of Caesar, and the party that had, again, supported Marius. So if these people helped elect Crassus and Pompey Council, they would strip back some of the political changes that Sulla had made, which would put more power into the hands of the common people. Now, the Senate, uh, happy with the power that they currently had, did not like Pompey and Crassus, even though they had been members of Sala's party. Caesar, who was returning from a governorship in Spain in 60 BC, uh, decided that he wanted to stand for council, and he won election. Caesar was already friends with Crassus, because Crassus had been financially supporting his career. Caesar then got Pompey and Crassus to establish an agreement with each other known as the First Triumvirate. Now, together, they would use each other's political influence to get around the legal balances that the Roman government had to stop one person from gaining too much power. And at this point, I think it makes sense to cover these men a little bit more closely. First, let's talk about Crassus. Now, Crassus was the richest man in Rome. I alluded to the fact that he was financing Caesar's political career. So Crassus had been given Caesar financial backing for some time because a Roman political career was not cheap. However, Crassus was not satisfied with being the richest man in Rome. He also wanted military glory, which would eventually lead to his downfall. Crassus was the son of a well-respected plebeian family, and he gained power and money through the prescription program of Sella and then some speculative real estate. As in, he would buy houses that were burned down and then rebuild them with slave labor for a hefty profit. There are also rumors that he would start the fires. I think that it goes without saying that in the ancient world, uh, for you to gain that much money and power, you probably did some shady things. So I, <laughs> I don't put this past him at all. I totally think he started fires, built, uh, burned down whole blocks, rebuilt them on the cheap with slave labor, which, you know, is free, and then sold it for a hefty profit, which I guess is one way to make money. There you go. Now, the next person who we're going to be talking about is Pompey. Pompey, also a member of Sulla's party, was an extremely successful military general who had been elected to Roman council at a very early age. He had had three triumphs, which were basically just the height of a Roman military career in which a general was recognized for his military victories by a huge party that shut down the entire city. Uh, Quick note, uh, the alliance between these men was an uneasy one. Crassus was very jealous of Pompey's military career. Crassus liked Caesar, but he had been a supporter of Sulla. Pompey and Caesar both competed for military glory, but the three of them together were able to balance each other out, and regardless, the agreement was cemented by Pompey's marriage to Caesar's daughter, Julia. Yes, Pompey was way older than Caesar's daughter, Julia, but we just spent time covering the Ptolemies. So, you know, at least they weren't related. During Caesar's councilship, he passed laws with the people that were extremely popular, like securing land for the poor. Go figure! At the end of his consulship, however, Caesar pieced out to Gaul because he had been given a governorship there. While in Gaul, Caesar's goal was basically to use the money in the province to personally enrich him so he could pay off some of his debts because he was very much in debt. <laughs> and, his, and the reason that I said that it was ironic that he had spent time, you know, like, persecuting the governors, the former governors of other Roman provinces was because Caesar was about to do exactly what he had been telling those people that they shouldn't have been doing, because the way that he goes about getting the money to pay back his debts is super duper not legal, but Caesar will be Caesar, and I don't think that the laws, I don't think that he thought that the laws that applied to other people applied to him. A lot of petty energy there, I'm all for it. His escapades are actually delightfully recorded for us in the commentaries, and in case you don't know what the commentaries are, you're in for a treat. So the commentaries are are a series of um, scrolls, whatever they had in Rome, where Caesar personally wrote down what he was doing in Gaul, and he wrote them in third person, a fact that I find hilarious. And... Also recently, some of the claims made by Caesar about Caesar in the commentaries have been called into question, like, did he really face a force of 430,000 Gauls? Probably not, as an army of that size at that time was literally impossible, but I'm going to chalk this up again to petty PR energy, the theme of this episode, Uh, (laughs) and if you're interested in reading the commentaries, I actually would highly suggest it, it's kind of hilarious. It starts with the famous line, Gaul in a hole is divided into three parts. And from then on out, it's basically Caesar talking about how awesome Caesar is. Again, petty PR energy, I'm all about it. I really do wish that we could get into more of Caesar's life and cover what happens in the commentaries more thoroughly. We also missed a whole episode in Caesar's early life with some pirates. But frankly, we don't have time for that in today's episode. But again, I'm sure I'm going to come back and cover Caesar at some point. Now, while Caesar was doing Caesar things in Gaul and eventually Britannia, his daughter Julia died in childbirth. Caesar offered another female relative to Pompey as a wife to keep him as an ally, but Pompey declined. In 53 BC, trying to gain military fame, Crassus was defeated in battle and killed. Pompey was then declared so consul as a sole, sorry, consul as an emergency measure, and then married the daughter of one of Caesar's political opponents. At this point, the first triumvirate had ended. In 50 B.C., Pompey and the Senate recalled Caesar to Rome because his term of governor had finished. Caesar didn't want to come back to Rome because if he did, he would be returning as a private citizen. Which, through a complicated way of legal things that's not really worth explaining, meant that technically Caesar no longer had political immunity, which meant he could be prosecuted for some things he had done, which were legally questionable. And uh, so Caesar didn't really want to do this. He didn't want to have to come back to Rome to stand trial and probably be thrown in jail and have all of his hard work taken away from him. And (sighs) Pompey knew... What he was doing, uh, Caesar knew what Pompey was doing, but regardless, Pompey demanded Caesar return, and Caesar had to make a choice. The choice that Caesar made was that he crossed the Rubicon River, the boundary of Italy, which ignited a civil war between himself and Pompey. Caesar crossed the Rubicon with a single legion, and after crossing, Caesar is quoted to have said, "Let the die be cast." The reason the crossing of the Rubicon was so significant is because the Rubicon as the border of Rome meant that if you were the head of a legion, if you, you couldn't cross that river with a military force, because then you would be threatening uh, Rome itself, which was a no-no. And so by crossing the Rubicon, Caesar was, again, basically declaring war on the rulers in Rome. Now, I'm sure that you've heard the expression before, or honestly, maybe you haven't, because it's not as familiar in today's lexicon, but, you know, crossing the metaphorical rubicon, it basically means, like, a point of no return, so that's where that saying comes from, so you can use that next time you're like, oh, I just, I don't know if I'm ready to cross that metaphorical rubicon. See? It's it's kind of fun, so there you go. New saying, you're welcome. Though Caesar only had one legion, as he approached Rome, Pompey decided to flee, and Caesar pursued them south. Now, the reason that Pompey fled is even though he was able to organize some men, and I think at this point he has like three legions or something, the men that he has are extremely green and new, and they were going to be no match for Caesar's wall train, and at this point, gall-hardened <laughs> Uh, legion of men so at this point um, Pompey is able to escape and Caesar now in control of Rome left it in the hands of one of his trusted men Mark Antony for the next few years Caesar outmaneuvered Pompey again and again until he won a decisive victory against Pompey in Greece in August of 48 BC now in Rome Caesar was appointed dictator he was elected to council, and then Caesar resigned the dictatorship after 11 days. Pompey, who had hosted the late T-12 and his daughter, now the queen of Egypt, decided that he would try his luck and try to regroup there. Caesar then pursued Pompey to Egypt. So I know that I basically just covered 500 years worth of history uh, for the Roman Republic in I have no idea how long this episode is going to be but I went through it very quickly and the reason that I did that is because I think that it puts in context the things that are going to be happening next and explains what Caesar was doing when he shows up in Egypt because I think a lot of times in coverage of Cleopatra it's just like and Caesar showed up one day and so by understanding the things that led up to this event it's going to make the things that Caesar does and the larger political climate that Cleopatra is going to have to maneuver, it puts it in some context for you. And so that's why I thought that this was important, even though I know I keep saying like, we're covering Cleopatra and she's really only been like a minor character in the story so far, but I assure you that that is no longer the case. Cleopatra is taking center stage in next episode. And so that is it for today. On a personal note, thank you guys so much for listening, and I will be competing for Miss Ohio USA on July 10th, which means I will not be uh, speaking to you guys, well, at least in podcast form. I'll be on social media and stuff before then. So thank you so much for listening, and if you've given me any support, reach out to me. I want to say thank you so, so much. I'm really excited. Again, Thank you guys so much for listening and helping make my dreams come true. Bye.